Hello and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Lewis Wolpert, Emeritus Professor of Biology as Applied to Medicine at University College London, and a distinguished writer and broadcaster on many different aspects of science, such as depression, which he covered in Malignant Sadness, and the evolutionary origins of human belief, which he wrote about in Six Impossible Things Before Breakfast. Both books are available in paperback from Faber. His new book does not shy away from big questions either. It's entitled How We Live and Why We Die, and the clue to Walpert's line of inquiry is in the subtitle, The Secret Lives of Cells. He argues persuasively that in order to understand many things about human birth, growth and development, and ultimately disease and death, we have to look at the activities of our cells. Nonetheless, as he told me, that approach to understanding what we are is a relatively recent development in human history. It took quite a long time, historically, for people to understand that <laughs> we were made of cells. But uh, I would have thought about a hundred years ago they began to think about cells. But it's really only with genes and proteins and DNA and really some of the modern technology. It's really the last 50 years that, that cell biology has really come into its own and people have begun to understand something about their complexity and how they function and how it influences our health. Now, for listeners who may not be especially scientifically literate, can you perhaps just tell me, you've mentioned there cells and proteins <laughs> and DNA. Obviously, you can give a definition, but just, just tell me what we're talking about here. What, what are you sort of zooming in and looking at? What are the sort of essential components that, that you're focusing on in the book? Well, I think it's important to realise that we all come from one single cell, the fertilised egg. It divides many, many times, and we are a society of billions of cells that all come from that fertilised egg. And the cell is just very tiny. There are about a million. If you go from the tip of your finger, you walk along your arm to the tip of your nose, you'll go through at least a million cells. They're very small, so you can't see them with the naked eye. They're surrounded by a very thin membrane, and really the function of cells is determined by proteins. Proteins are the workhorses, the wizards, the geniuses of cells. And what genes, which are made of DNA, what they do is they provide the code for proteins. But it's really proteins that makes your cells function and my cells function and keeps us alive. We know that, that DNA is a, is a complex code, and I, I, one of the things I took from your book was that proteins are extremely complex. It's not the simple you know, case that there are only a few types of proteins. There are many different types, and they're, they're constantly changing. All the genes do. Genes are very passive. They do nothing except provide the code for proteins, and that decoding is done by other proteins, largely, and another nucleic acid, messenger, uh, messenger RNA. Proteins are really a long string of small subunits called amino acids, but they fold in very complex ways. And they do absolutely remarkable things. The way your muscles contract, that's proteins. The way nerves conduct impulses, that's proteins changing in the nerve cell membrane to bring about the electric charges. I'm afraid your life is really entirely based on proteins. <laughs> You use the metaphor, I think you, you say the metaphor dates back to the mid-19th century, of cells as a society, which goes some way to sort of capturing the way they, they function in relation to one another rather, rather than being isolated. Cells are a society, and most many of them cooperate uh, with each other. There's no one in charge of this enormous society. 
So they have to behave themselves and do well, otherwise things go wrong. And cancer, of course, is the classic example where a small group or a single cell goes wrong and can kill the rest of the cells. Another metaphor that you quite frequently use is cleverness. You, you ascribe cleverness to cells. Now tell me what you mean by the cleverness of cells. I think cells are just amazingly clever. I mean, let me make it clear, we don't fully understand the functioning of a single cell in all its details. It's very, very complex. And I suppose the cleverness, the subject that I know most about is how embryos develop, how we come from this single cell, the fertilized egg, and the way they talk to each other and interpret and how they bring about changes in shape are sort of beyond, <laughs> beyond imagining. They are just amazingly clever. If they were human beings, you would say, what a clever group this is. No, they are, they, they are simply amazing. And one of the things which your book made me really ponder mm -hmm. properly for the first time was really how much develops, how much complexity develops from a single fertilised human egg well, and how much is, how much is sort of inherent within that. I'm terribly sorry. Almost everything about you or most things about you are determined by the development of that single cell which multiplied and gave rise to you. Yes, the environment does play a role. And yes, as you grow up, you do learn things in the environment. But how you remember things and how it changes you is the influence that the environment has upon the cells. We are nothing more than this enormous society of cells with no one in charge, and yet it functions and they cooperate. It, it, it's, just, it's just amazing. Sorry, I... I am still mind-boggled that we come from a single cell. I mean, it's you can't see that fertilized egg, and yet out you pop. Now, you you touched upon there the issue of of predetermination and yeah. the question of nature versus nurture. Yes, and I I had I had taken from the book the fact that you that you felt you know that, that we we couldn't sort of say this is the gene for, no. but. You, you do at one point talk about criminality and you say if we could discover the biological basis for criminality, criminality then perhaps that would lead to new ways of sure. tackling it. And I wanted to ask you to, to unpack that a bit. There are a lot of genes. It, uh, yes, one shouldn't talk about a gene um, uh, for criminality, but there may be a group of genes that does. So you don't want to say, and also it wouldn't be a gene for criminality. It would be a set of genes that have gone wrong that have led to, to, to criminality, and that's what I mean. But you see, I'm always struck by the fact that many people fear snakes. Now, I can tell you that however much you frighten a child about an electric plug, I've never heard of a child being frightened of an electric plug. You know what I mean. So there are many things that people don't like thinking about as being with innate within us. For example, it's clearly innate that we have causal beliefs about cause and effect because children from the age of a few months, you can show by experiments, have innate beliefs about physical cause and effect. And if they saw this cup moving without something pushing, that they'll stare at wrong, that they know that something's wrong. So there's more innateness to us than I think people, particularly social scientists and even psychologists, like to admit. Now, when it comes to public understanding of science, which I know you've got a long-standing interest in, I wondered how you felt about areas like cloning and stem cell research yes. and chimeras, which it seems to me often get muddled up and, and rather traduced in, in the popular press, let's say. 
The press is quite bad about reporting science. I mean, there's a famous example, which you probably saw, of that mouse with the human ear on its back. That wasn't a human ear. That was a piece of cartilage just molded to look like a human ear. And all the stuff about Frankenstein foods and all that. I must say, I think a great deal of bioethics and worry about things is, do you take a phrase from Mark Twain, is moral masturbation. It has really very little basis whatsoever. Now, cloning, I'm not against cloning, except for the fact that the child would almost certainly be abnormal. So I would ban cloning of a human being without doubt. I think the issue about taking embryonic stem cells from an early human embryo, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever because the embryo may die, but with IVF, with in vitro fertilization, which happens to, with thousands of women's use, thousands and thousands of embryos are lost. And the idea that the Catholic Church has gone down the line saying that the fertilized egg is human is simply nonsense. So with cloning, if cloning could be achieved without no, abnormalities no, being introduced, you would have no I ethical have objection. No objection to it. No, I, I feel people should be allowed to reproduce in any way whatsoever until you can show that this having a bad effect on society. Now, you write in the book about cells and why we age, because cells are very good at, at repairing themselves and, <laughs> and restoring themselves and replenishing themselves. So why do we age? It's slightly controversial, and that's my next book <laughs> is on aging. And the standard view is that we age at simply wear and tear. And so a mouse ages when it's a couple of years old, but an elephant doesn't age till it's really many years old. Evolution doesn't give a hoot about you once you reproduced and your children are safe. And so there, it only provides protection for cells and repair mechanisms until that's achieved. But basically, Aging is wear and tear. And you mentioned some interesting research on the people of Okinawa in Japan yeah. who seem to, to last longer because they eat less. There's very good evidence throughout the animal kingdom that low calorie intake increases old age. How happy and well you are in that old age is another matter <laughs> altogether. But there is good evidence for that, yes. You're old, but you're hungry. <laughs> um, no, you may not be hungry, but... <clears throat> I mean, a lot of things also get worse with old age. Well, I mean, my memory, for example, for certain words and things like that is really quite, is really quite bad. You mentioned cancer earlier, and in the book, you say that cancer may be the price that we pay for cells' amazing ability to repair and replicate themselves. Well, what happens with cancer cells, they become asocial. In other words, they no longer obey the controls, keeping cells from replicating inappropriately. And that's the price I'm afraid we pay. Many, I mean, the way we grow, the way we develop is cells multiplying. And unfortunately, sometimes this can go wrong. It's a very complicated process. And those cells become cancerous and they just want to gobble, eat all the food and move to other places and they kill the other cells. Cells also provide an area of research for looking at mental health too. You talk about the complexity of the brain in the book and how at a cellular level one's mental well-being may be affected. To understand how a brain works you have to think in terms of cells. Um, I suffer from depression and I would love to understand depression terms. Thing, but one of the features of depression is there's a molecule called serotonin and you don't have enough of it surrounding the cells in a particular part of your brain. And if you can 
deal with that, um, things get better. And with Alzheimer's, it's the death of certain cells in the brain. So I don't think there's any illness that you can really think of that doesn't involve cells in some, in some form or another. And you say at one point in the book that the neural networks in our brain are of such complexity that, that we may never understand them fully. I mean, it, is that is that a pessimistic remark, or is it, is it is that simply something you think we must we must reconcile ourselves to? Some of the things that people are doing, you know, in understanding networks and understanding the brain are astonishing, and you know, trying to get computers to behave in a brain in a brain-like way. But it is so complicated, and there are so many connections that I just wonder where it will go. Now, but that's just me, and that may merely reflect my ignorance. I wondered in general how sanguine you felt about about our ability to make progress in these very complicated areas. You say that d discovering the ability to reprogram cells without them introducing other harms sure. would be like turning lead into gold. And I wondered <laughs> what, you, what you what you felt about the the, the well, future. Well, I think the recent work on stem cells, where you can take a you know a cell from your skin and turn it into a stem cell, is simply amazing and that is just turning a boring cell into gold just how the research with stem cells will go i'm just always a bit nervous about things being oversold there was remember there was great excitement about gene therapy 20 30 years ago but it turned out to be much more complicated than people thought and it just may be the same with stem cells but i'm very hopeful that good will come of that